You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Humanize Me. This is Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And this is actually the time I'm recording. This is the, t- is the week right before Thanksgiving. And I am feeling massively thankful, uh, not for a lot of things, but not the least of which is every one of you that listens to this show, because I just love being part of this conversation in this community. I mean, the, I, I appreciate people listening. I love it when people are writing back in. At some point, we got to do a, a thing where I just read the cool stories about the way that these conversations have a tendency to change the way I think. They change the way some other people think, and that's changing the way we behave, and that's changing our relationships. And in a lot of ways, it's making them better, at least according to the emails and according to my life. And so in some ways, we're living up to the whole humanize me moniker. I just wanted to use the word moniker. Listen, I, I will do, we'll do that, kind of, um, that kind of listener feedback later, not this week, because the conversation I had this week was with a new friend of mine named Jim Gilliam. And he's fascinating and interesting and cool. And our conversation just rambled on because I just couldn't get enough of him. Um, I was at his office in downtown LA, uh, the office of Nation Builder, which is the software company he runs. He's had like such a life story. And in fact, I knew his life story walking in there. And and I promised him, I said, look, I'm not going to make you run through that life story again. What I'm going to do is at the beginning of the podcast, I'm going to play this talk he gave, this viral video talk called The Internet is My Religion. And so I'm going to play that in a second and then we'll pick up the conference because that'll tell you everything you need to know know about his history and how he got to this point. And then we'll pick up the conversation. And listen, if it's too long for you, feel free. I mean, like, not like you need my permission, but like, feel free to like cut it off halfway through if you've had enough. I just couldn't get enough of the guy. And, uh, and we talked about some really interesting stuff. We didn't agree on everything. In fact, right at the end of the, of the podcast, there's this, he keeps talking about like what people were meant to contribute. And afterwards, I thought to myself as I was driving home, like, who mean, like, like you're at, like, who is imputing all this like meaning to the universe? As far as like, I can tell the universe itself has no meaning. We're the ones that make the meaning between us. Um, but I'll have to go back and follow up with on that. But you, when we get to it, you'll you'll hear and you'll go like, yeah, he's he and Bart, they really like each other and they really don't agree on everything. Um, there's also one point you can look forward to it where he's just like, I answered that question already and I'm sick of talking to you about it. And um, kind of put me in my place. And I love that. So anyway, if you want to find out more about Jim. If you want to find out more about me, go to barcampolo.org. If you know, if you, if this is your first time in the podcast, I'm the humanist chaplain at USC. I do a bunch of counseling and coaching, which some people who are making transitions out of religion, especially dig onto. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out on the website, all that stuff, but enough of that. Let's get on with the show. Let's get on with the conversation. Here's Jim Gilliam talking at you. And then later on, Jim Gilliam talking at me. There are three pillars to a successful movement, stories, tools, and faith. We've heard amazing stories the last 24 hours, and many of us are building the tools for democracy. But what I want to talk about is faith, my struggle with faith. 
Growing up, I had two loves, Jesus and the internet. <laughs> my uh, dad worked for IBM and my family moved out to Silicon Valley when I was very young. Um, our home happened to be right across the street from a church. Uh, this wasn't any church, though. Uh, this church had thousands of members and was ground zero for Jerry Falwell's new moral majority movement on the West Coast. I was born again when I was eight. Um, I put my faith in Jesus and became quite the precocious young conservative. Uh, as a teenager, I developed a fiercely independent worldview. I went on mission trips. I listened to Rush Limbaugh. I called talk radio, all while my mom homeschooled my two sisters and I, trying to protect us from the corrupting influences of the secular world. Then one day, my dad brought home this funny-looking phone and plugged it into his computer. It made this bizarre screeching noise, like it was trying to mate with a rhinoceros or something. Uh, instead, it attracted me. Um, <laughs> that's when I found out that computers could talk to each other. From that point on, I would, it, was, it was all over for me. Right? I would uh, do my schoolwork in the morning, I would go to church three times a week, and then I would go online. And I'd meet all kinds of people, hackers, feminists, punks, Tori Amos fans, people far older than me who had no idea that I was 12 years old. I was judged by my brain, not discounted because of my age. I loved it. I went to college at Liberty University. This is where Jerry Falwell trained young soldiers to go out into the kingdom of God and, and, and into every profession and win it for the kingdom of God. It was a massive operation, uh, thousands of students on campus, tens of thousands off campus, all connected by a global network of churches and an infrastructure that dated back 2,000 years. My role was in the computer lab. I spent all my time there. Um, I brought the internet to campus. I set up Liberty's first website. I even fixed Dr. Falwell's computer. But by spring break, I'd run out of breath. Literally, I couldn't breathe. I had cancer, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I started chemo right away uh, with my family and the church by my side, but um, two weeks into it, we found out that my mom had cancer too. Nine rounds of chemo later, uh, I survived, she didn't. Our family was destroyed, and my faith in God was left shattered. I, uh, my ticket out of all of this mess was at a startup in Boston. Um, but just six months into it, <laughs> The cancer came back. Uh, this time it was in my blood. Uh, my only chance was if they could find a bone marrow donor. And even then, it was a long shot. I had maybe a 10% chance of surviving. So uh, the doctors started looking, um, but then uh, the doctors started looking, but then I spent two months in the hospital getting hammered with chemo. The, uh, I was in the ICU constantly. I almost died a couple of times. Um, I was had so much pain that I had this button to push, right? And every time I pressed it, I would be injected with pharmaceutical-grade heroin. Every time I did, I felt defeated and broken. I just wanted to end. God had forsaken me. But the doctors hadn't. They found a donor. I spent two weeks uh, getting baked in an oven of radiation, and then early one morning, groggy from all the Benadryl, I watched as a small bag of marrow emptied into my arm. I walked out of the hospital two weeks later, replenished with the blood of a stranger. I was determined to sort of move on with my life, so I gave my heart to the internet. I was the 
uh, an engineer at Lycos, one of the first search engines. I uh, was a CTO at business.com, all up until 9-11. Then the activist in me awoke. I was under no illusions that I could actually change anything, but I knew this was a historic moment and that if I didn't at least try, I would regret it in 10 years. Robert Greenwald was looking for someone to research the Iraq war for his first documentary. Um, I sent him a link to my blog and the next day I was a movie producer. <laughs> Four crazy intense months later, we drove up to our very first screening at an indie theater in Santa Monica. The line was around the block. We added a second screening that night, and in a matter of weeks, thousands of screenings all over the world were organized by activists, all coordinated through the internet. And bit by bit, the media changed the way they talked about the war. Holy crap, this works. My faith was restored, but it wasn't faith in God. It was faith in the internet. Or, or no, it was faith in people connected through the internet. We went on to start Brave New Films. Uh, we made several documentaries, we crowdfunded films, we changed things that I never even thought were possible, all by telling stories and connecting people through the internet. And then I ran out of breath, again. All the radiation treatments that I'd had years before for the cancer had scarred my lungs to the point where I couldn't even walk up the steps. They had to be replaced, double lung transplant. I needed someone to die so that I could be saved. First, I had to get on the list. Uh, all of the statistics for lung transplants are posted online, and UCLA had the best ones on the West Coast. But they took one look at my file and said, forget it, the surgery was too complicated. Come on! I was really pissed, so I blogged about it. Um, I called the surgeons at UCLA a few names, which I probably shouldn't repeat here. But then something amazing happened. One of the volunteers at Brave New Films saw the post and she wrote an email to the generic UCLA email address uh, accusing them of only doing easy surgeries to artificially inflate their statistics. <laughs> then my sister wrote an email, then all my friends wrote an email. This is what happens when your friends are activists. Um, two weeks later, I got a call from the scheduler at UCLA. <laughs> I told her they had already rejected me. She said, I, I don't know, you're on my list, you need an appointment. <laughs> I met with the surgeon, and he said he'd been forwarded the emails. Um, my case had been rejected before I had even gotten to him. You know, lung transplant surgeons have many great qualities, but uh, humility is not one of them. No one was going to accuse him of being afraid of a surgery. There were many more hurdles for us to uh, cross. Uh, the, uh, uh, the health insurance companies tried to, um, tried to weasel out of it. The, the uh, transplant board kept coming up, kept coming up with excuses. Um, I had no more tests to do every single week. But my friends, my family, their friends, a bunch of people from the internet all fought to get me on the list. And they got me on the list. A year later, the phone rang. Then my stepmom's phone rang. Then my dad's phone rang. It was time. As I was prepped for the surgery, I wasn't thinking about Jesus or whether my heart would start beating again after they stopped it or whether I would go to heaven if it didn't. I was thinking about all the people who had gotten me here. I owed every moment of my life 
to countless people I would never meet. Tomorrow, that interconnectedness would be represented in my own physical body. Three different DNAs. Individually, they were useless, but together, they would equal one functioning human. What an incredible debt to I didn't even know where to start. And that's when I truly found God. God is just what happens when humanity is connected. Humanity connected is God. There was no way I would ever repay this debt. It was only by the grace of God, your grace, that I would be saved. The truth is, we all have this same cross to bear. We all owe every moment of our lives to countless people we will, we will never meet. Whether it's the soldiers who give us the freedoms because they fight for our country, right? Or it's the surgeons who give us the cures that keep us alive. We all owe every moment of our lives to each other. We are all connected. We are all in debt to each other. What the, the internet gives us the opportunity to repay just a small part of that debt. As a child, I believed in creationism, that the universe was created in six days. Today, we are the creators. We each have our own unique skills and talents to contribute to creating the kingdom of God. We serve God best when we do what we love for the greatest cause we can imagine. What the people in this room do is spiritual, it is profound. We are the leaders of this new religion. We have faith that people connected can create a new world. Each one of us is a creator, but together, we are the creator. person whose lungs I now have is that he was 22 years old and six feet tall. I know nothing about who he was as a person, but I do know something about his family. I know that in the height of loss, when all anyone should have to do is grieve, as their son or their brother lay motionless on the bed, they were asked to give up to seven strangers a chance to live. And they said yes. Today, I breathe through someone else's lungs while another's blood flows through my veins. I have faith in people, I believe in God, and the internet is my religion. But what even that video doesn't tell is what you're doing now. And so I'm sitting here at your fancy nation builder office, but I don't think most people outside of the realm of politics and nonprofit management know what you know, your average Joe doesn't know what Nation Builder is, but they will. <laughs> so, so, so tell me what you're doing now. So Nation Builder, you know, comes out of my really deeply held belief that everybody has something that they are uniquely meant to contribute into the world and that 
our purpose is to find what that is and offer it for like the greatest possible good that we can come up with. And you know, over your life that changes and you get better at it and, and all of that. And that's been a lot of what my journey is. But, um, but the biggest thing that I've learned is that um, if you're lucky enough to figure out what that thing is that you're meant to create, you almost can never do that by yourself. <laughs> um, you need other people. And the internet makes that more possible to like connect with other people and like, and turn you know those relationships into action that can actually make real world things occur. Um, but that requires leadership. <laughs> and so that was how we kind of made this leap from everybody creating what they're meant to create to, okay, what we need to provide to the world is leadership software. Um, how do you... Because not like you're saying like everybody has something to contribute in your mind. But some people, what they contribute is leadership, and leadership's important for everybody else to be able to contribute what they have to contribute. Yeah, when you're Am I hearing you? Well, sort of. When you're, when you're putting something out into the world, um, like let's say, so let's use an example is the movies, right, that, uh, that, that I was working on um, you know, after 9-11, right? So we were creating something, we were creating a movie, and we, there was a reason, the reason why we were creating it was because the traditional media wasn't covering what was going on in Iraq, right? And so we wanted to tell that story. Um, but the problem was that um, the reason we had to tell the story was because the traditional media wasn't covering it. And so that meant that we couldn't sell it to a studio or to a network. And, you know, you know, uh, Robert Greenwald had those kinds of relationships, the director, like he could have like done that in any other normal environment. But we didn't have those options, and so we had to get really creative with how we distributed it. And so we started to like take the concepts of political organizing, AKA like we had to lead um, a group of people um, that we attracted through the internet and through organizations like Move On, folks who folks who cared about getting the word about what was really going on in Iraq. And we said, hey, we've got this film, like you should host a screening, right, in your community, and we'll coordinated like all through the website so that other people can find out about it um and at the end of the day what that was is like that was leadership we were saying like hey more people should know about what's happening here um here's what the opportunity is for you and how it connects to what it is that you care about and here's something that you can do and so we were like building leadership capacity like within the folks who were like excited to like host that screen so but that was not possible so, before I mean, the internet right now i and I know you're like, you and the internet are deeply close. Um, <laughs> I am not so close to the internet. Um, part, and probably that's an issue of competency. Like, I would like it better if I understood it better or, or could type. Um, but, but, but it's your concept of leadership. that, Like, when you describe what just happened, that's not what I would classically think of as leadership. So like, what is your concept of leadership? Like, what's your definition? Well, so, so there are like many different uh, ways of leading folks, right? So then they're all uh, extremely valid. Like where, the way that I came into it was because of the internet in which, so there's a whole new way to lead or a new opportunity to lead at a really big scale very, very quickly without any geographic borders around particular issues or causes, right? Um, that was just not, it's not the kind of leadership that's having you know, a one-to-one -one conversation with like a group of people in a room. It's just, it's different, it's-, it's, it's But that's relationships are different. Mm -hmm. But like leadership is this thing where like there's a bunch of people 
and you draw them in a direction, right? Like you get them to do something that you have, you, you, you have, you, right? Yeah. So, so that's what I think of like, like, hey, everybody, follow me. Like, we're gonna go over this bridge or we're gonna build this wall or we're gonna put on a show. Right, so, so let's build this wall. <laughs> um, but in order to build this wall, what I have to do as a leader is I gotta like raise a bunch of money and I gotta recruit a hundred volunteers and I gotta find someone who's got a, got a crane and a, you know, and a bulldozer and like, you know, a bunch of bricks and stuff like that. And so I can use leadership software, right? In order to be able to sort of both find those people, coordinate them, folks that I, that I may not have ever even known before um, and keep track of all of it and then Imagine it's not just about building a wall, but it's about building the biggest wall like has, that has ever been built. This is the worst right? analogy <laughs> really for us is, to be using at this moment. It is really terrible, moment, right? Especially at this, moment, at this moment. Right, right. Well, yeah, you know, Trump's got to figure out who's going to build this wall for him. So we're going to like lay it all out, right? Oh, but he, you need, you know, hundreds of thousands of volunteers, right, in order to like build this wall. To, let's, right? to make this movie. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna go from building a wall, or like or build a bridge. Let's build a bridge instead build of a bridge. wall. Build a bridge. Okay, we're gonna build a bridge. I, I like that better. I guess. Um, um. But yeah, so you need to organize all these people. You need so I that part of it I get. Um. So your definition of so so not everybody is a leader. No. Okay. Um, well, and it's and that's important. That, like to me, that's a huge and important thing to say. Yeah, no, not everyone is a leader, but um, I believe everybody could be a leader, but it's but the way that we see leadership is it is a role that you take on in a particular context. So for example, right? It's not an identity. No, no, that's, that's the biggest thing is that people think of it as an identity frequently, and maybe it is for some, but like, um, you know, I am certainly not a leader when it comes to anything related to like, cooking food or anything like that. I go, I love going to like the fancy restaurant where it's like some guy is like, he's like a leader in his craft and I'm going there and I'm having that experience. And it's See, like what's really weird amazing. Is like a great cook. That doesn't necessarily strike me as a form of leadership. That just strikes me as a form of craftsmanship or, or excellence. Well, so that's, that's one of the things that I've learned is that yes, it is absolutely craftsmanship and excellence. But like, you don't pull off a restaurant at that level without exceptional leadership skills because you cannot do it by yourself. It's all about like the orchestration of like no, it's all true. the pieces. That it's true. Together. In fact, it's one of my favorite analogies is I'll often be with somebody and I'll, and, and I'll say, if you want to cook, don't open a restaurant. Because <laughs> running a restaurant is about leadership. And cooking is about standing behind a stove and making the, making the magic happen. And so I'm like, sometimes I'll say to somebody, I know you think you want to open a restaurant, but I'm looking at you and I'm going like, you want to cook. You don't want to be bogged down, figuring out who you're hiring and paying the bills and, and, and so this how is, many napkins we need. So this is the challenge. So I am obsessed with a show called chef's table. It's on Netflix and it's a documentary. Uh, each episode is a documentary of a different world-class chef. That's like very unique and unusual. Um, they're the best at their craft um, and they all have like big staff that they have to like um, influence and inspire. So at that right? level you are leading. It, and you are, and, and, but to see like how they get into the craft, right, and, and, and how it is that they're able to kind of teach people and like how to like be engaged with it. And then the opportunities that they then provide 
for their staff. Um, you know, one of the restaurants, uh, they have a whole process where like anybody on the staff can like come up like with whatever dish they have and they have a special day set aside to, to just do this. Um, and then everybody tastes it and like critiques it. And sometimes those things like show up on the menu, but very rarely does that happen. But it's all part of, you know, that, that leader, right? That craftsman is also like, you know, teaching the next generation or the next crew. And, and, and that to me is another big part of leadership is it's like, it's not just about you yourself being a leader, it's about building the leadership capacity, right? In your organization, identifying who those leaders are and really elevating and helping them grow. See, and, and, and I mean, one of the things is because a lot of the people that listen to me and that I talk with are, one of the things that, ha that holds us together is they're people that desperately want to be part of communities that reflect their values and that are built around a worldview that they can actually handle. And so church is off limits to them, not because they don't think those people are wonderfully nice, but because the narrative at the center of it makes no sense to them. Maybe you can relate. Um, and so, and so, but some of them are like, man, I want to be part of that community. But like, does that mean I have to be a leader? And some, and I watch people try to start communities and they falter and they lose hope, not in community, but in themselves, like, they, or rather they lose hope, not in, they lose hope in the whole idea. They go like, communities don't work. And I'm like, no, man, what didn't work was trying to do one without a leader. Like having 10 people get together and say, let's do this by committee. That's not how you build a good band. That's not how you build a good club. That's not how you build a good com community. So, so you, you came out of that crazy life experience and you end up making those movies. And that's where, is that where you grasp, oh my gosh, leadership is really important? Um, this, the movies is where I really grasp the power of storytelling. Um, and what I started to come to grips with was the idea that maybe the most important thing that I could do was to like share my own story. Mm -hmm. I like to build things. Um, I was, you know, more than happy to like sit in my, they called it when I, in my previous life in, in, in doing internet stuff, they called my office the cave, right? Because like the lights were always off. Right. And I was programming all the time with the, with the, like the glare of the screen. Um, so I was like, you know, more than happy to like ignore everybody, um, and, and build stuff. So I felt like that was my contribution. So I was like behind the scenes at Brave New Films, like making that information that work, that, that, that infrastructure work. Um, but I started to have to come to grips with like, my story's crazy. Right. And it illuminates a different way of seeing the world. And I started to really see that as a need, um, that the, world had, particularly in America, where there's a different narrative about what you can do with your life. Um, and so coming to grips with that and then kind of being willing to put myself out there as the leader um, and saying like, hey, this is what I believe, um, that was really, really hard. Um, and then because of the power of that story and how people responded to it, I then really did like my, you know, four person nation builder, a company that was like just getting started, which was like me and a couple of people programming, it started to become a real thing. People were like, I, I want to 
to do that. I want to do something with my life. I want to, if it's running for office or starting that nonprofit or like making my movie happen, I want to do that. Okay, so I just realized I did a terrible job of, I asked you what you did. You started talking about like, we do this thing for leadership. And then I never like got down to like, okay, well, what is this thing you do? Because like on some level, Nation Builder is a software service company, right? Uh Like you have a software, people purchase it, lease it. Yeah, you like rent it. You You pay a monthly fee. Yeah. And then you guys give them all sorts of technical support. Mm Mm-hmm. So to make that software enable them to make all their dreams come true. To lead people to make all their dreams come true. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, And it's funny because, you know, like, I don't know when this podcast will air, but I know when we're making it. We're making it on the Friday after Tuesday. We're making it on the Friday after the election. And I actually stopped by your office on election night. I couldn't stay for that party because once I saw it start to go south, I was like, I have to go be with, I have to be alone with my wife to deal. That was a really hard night for me. Um, and and the, the day after was really hard. So like, we're in that, we're still in that moment. And what's funny is a lot of people are asking me, like I haven't made any public, I haven't made a podcast about it yet, I haven't talked about it. I know I need to. Mm. Um, but I've, I've comforted a lot of people that are scared. But when I was down here that night, I was like, y'all make software that people use to organize campaigns. And if I understand correctly, you sold that software or leased it to everybody except Hillary. Not because she, you wouldn't have given it to her. We really wanted her to use it. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it would have been better than what she, probably what she did use. But she had her own gig. She, they, they had their, their, their whole team. I mean, they did have this huge machine yeah. that proved not nimble enough to deal. Um, but I was sitting here and I was going like, wait, you sold software to the Trump campaign? I mean, like, isn't that like being an arms dealer and you, you, you sell nukes to Iran? Like, I mean, did, did, did that hit you at all where you were feeling like, did you feel any responsibility for what was going on because you worked with those people? Or are you like, everybody has a right to the software? Um, a lot of people look at the work that we do as like, you know, weapons dealing, like arms, one one side or the other. Um, obviously, we don't see it that way at all. And in fact, like we're the force against the arms dealing in the political realm. Um, most political software um, before us was oriented around one side or the other. Like you only work with Democrats, you only work with Republicans, and it was thought of as a weapon to wield against the other side. Um, and we said, no, actually, um, what we want to do is we want to enable democracy. We want to make it possible for everybody to organize. If you look at the First Amendment, which we look at a lot in America, um, we talk about you know, the freedom of speech, and we sometimes talk about the freedom of religion, but we generally skip over the second half of the First Amendment and go straight to the Second Amendment and start talking about guns. <laughs> but the second half of the First Amendment is about the freedom to assemble and to petition your government. Today, that happens on the internet more than ever. So the idea that you would sort of deny access to someone's First Amendment rights based upon their political beliefs is totally bonkers. So I believe that it is morally wrong, the partisan 
technology makers who use it as weapons like they would sell it to weapons dealers to sell it into Iran. Um, and that we'll look back on this time period in the future and be like, wow, it was actually legal and acceptable to discriminate against people and the technology that was available to them based upon their political beliefs. Right, but like, let's say I have, um, I have a theater and the Ku Klux Klan comes to me and says, we want to have a rally in your theater. Now, I believe they are constitutionally allowed to gather, but not in my theater. Like, I'm not going to help you. And you say, like, but what if the NAACP shows up? And you're like, oh, sure. I'll even give you a discount. And you're like, but that's, you're, you're discriminating based on your own political ideology. I go like, yes. Yeah, the, 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 I'm, my skills, my talents, my capital, yeah, I'm going to use it. Like, that's what I assemble to do. And so, like, I'm not saying that anybody should, uh, like, when you say that those software makers are denying, I'm sort of like, well, they're denying their talent to a cause they don't believe in. Obviously, it's legal for them to do what they're doing. We feel that it is our role is not of a venue that like may or may not choose to have a certain concert or a certain group there at all. We feel that what we are doing is much more fundamental to You're like the water progressing. Company. You're like the water company. I would, like... be, I would go as much more fundamental than that. It's like there is a moral obligation and a moral imperative that like no matter what, there is the ability for folks to organize, to create what they are meant to create, whether or not we agree with them or not. Wow. Okay, it's, cause it's funny because you've made this statement, you made it when you were with my students the other night, and you made it t this today, and I just keep letting it go, and I can't let it go. Because <laughs> you have, like, for a guy who gave up, you know, organized evangelical Christianity, um, I'm sensitive to, you know, to, uh, to broad value statements. And, and the thing you said was, I believe everybody is meant to create something or to, to contribute something. And I sort of go like, well, what evidence do you have that that's true? Why do you believe that? Because I don't believe that. I mean, that's, first of all, that's presupposing that people were created with intentionality, which I, I don't think you believe. I sure don't. But the idea that like everybody has something to contribute, I sort of go like, I actually know some people. Like I, I've, I mean, I've had the privilege in my life of knowing some psychopaths. And you said like, I, like I, I don't think they really have anything to contribute. That doesn't mean I want to kill them, but like, I sure don't want to sell them software. So um, it's funny you bring up psychopaths, or not funny, or but it's interesting because that is probably the one thing that I grapple with that I kind of don't really talk about. But in the context of like a connected humanity is God, right? Which is which is my my framework and how I I think about things. Um the one sort of force that disconnects people, and I've seen it um, you know, in my interactions with folks like you described, 
um, are folks that have a complete lack of empathy. Um, and so a psychopath. Um, and not only that, but it, um, a psychopath's behavior is such that it like, creates um, chaos and um, toxicity amongst other people. So it's not just uh, you know, a vortex that pulls things out. It actually like, is like a virus that infests like other people, and it is a, a danger. Some of right? them, some yeah. of them. And what's interesting is I, I just encountered a psychopath a few months ago, a student. And he was a predator, but not a malicious predator. He was sort of like that Jake Gyllenhaal character in um, that movie um, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. He didn't want to hurt people, and he didn't take pleasure in hurting people. He was just going to do, like there was this thing he wanted, and if you got in his way, he would walk on you. And if, he needed to, if you needed to die for what he wanted to happen, in this case it was like, he was gonna get what he wanted sexually. And if you liked that, terrific. He didn't, he didn't enjoy hurting you. But if you didn't like that, he was still gonna do it. And I found myself just thinking that I felt so sorry for him, so sad for him, because I kept reaching to try to find the place where I could help him to understand that what he was doing was hurting somebody else. And then I realized like, he, he doesn't have the ability to yeah. care about hurting somebody else. Now what's funny is like I know some narcissists and there's, there's a similarity there where they, they, they really don't, like other people's feelings register but only in terms of how this affects them, how this affects me. And the, the line between narcissism and psychopathy is like, it's kind of a continuum yeah. in my mind. So yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting because I don't think it's a stretch. I think a lot of psychologists right now are saying like, Donald Trump is a very high functioning narcissist. There's really no evidence that he deeply cares about other people. Yeah, that, that does appear to be the case, yeah. Which brings me back to selling software to his campaign. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm trying to understand because a part of me thinks like when I hear you talk about your community building work and your leadership development work, I want all of those things harnessed for the people that share our values. But I do not want those weapons to fall into the hands of people that don't care. It's not a weapon. Technology is not a weapon. I just, I just reject that out of hand. Why? Like, because because the internet is my religion. God is what happens when humanity is connected. The but, ability but dude, to connect. We grew up in is, we grew up in evangelical Christianity. That was a weapon. That's a that can be a weapon. Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely. It has been for. So uh, it hurt, I yeah. saw it hurt lots of people. Absolutely. Yeah. So 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 maybe I shouldn't say it is a weapon. Like like a software is a weapon. In the same way that fire isn't a weapon, it can heat your house. But it can be a weapon. It's dangerous. And so, like, I don't think it's, I wonder if it's, if it's, it, it, my question is, like, because, like, my ability, like, I can make people into better relators. And people come to me for that help. They're like, could you teach me how to be a better speaker? And my first question is, what's your message? 
because I'm not interested in helping people with bad messages become better speakers. I am humble enough to admit that I don't know everything. And Unlike, the idea... Un, are you saying I'm not? Uh, what I, what I, <laughs> You're right. What I, what I know is that the idea that like I or anybody would decide who has the opportunity to organize, who has the opportunity to run for office. Whose message is worthy. Like, the American people decided that this guy is the president. I don't have that responsibility. American people do. I can't do it. I'm not able to. We see, first thing is like, you're humble enough to think that you don't know everything, but then you're willing to say, but I'll trust the American people. Now, it's not on. about trusting. It's not, it's not even my, it's not even, it's, it's, it's not even relevant what my feelings are about who the president should be or, you know, who our senator should be or anything else like that. It's like, it's not even relevant what I think. You've, I mean, like, I'm dumbstruck because it is relevant because you, you have, like, there's one person whose, whose message you do get to decide on and that's your message. Absolutely. And so you take responsibility for your message and you choose it over other messages. You choose a message of love and leadership over hate. And so if you're willing to make that judgment about your own message, I guess the question is, why aren't you willing to make that judgment about somebody else's message in terms of whether or not to amplify it or to tamp it down? I mean, I've answered this a few times already. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, so like there's something I'm not getting though. Mm. And so, so in a sense, in terms of movement building, because it feels like a lot of what your, your software is about is about movement building. Is, do you have sort of a, an overall trust in, like if all people are doing all the things that all people wanna do, sort of like how some economists trust the market, do you, do you, trust, do you trust the overall process? No. Um, so this is, this, is, this is actually my message. My message is that when I believe that humanity connected is God. God is just what happens when humanity is connected. What's different about my God than like any other kind of God that might be out there is that we actually get to decide as humans, even as individuals, what kind of God we want that to be. And the thing that I learned in the Bible, right, was that, you know, God was not always good. God did some like pretty mean things. Um, he like destroyed the earth because um, like they were evil and he saved one person, right? Uh, Noah or his family, right? Um, things like that. And so God is all powerful. A connected humanity is all powerful. But what's different is that we're not at the whims of God. We get to decide what God is. And that's why it is our obligation to contribute what we're meant to contribute to what that greater thing is. And so we, it can go, this can go horribly wrong. 
Like connected to humanity can go and be destructive. It can destroy people's lives. It can elect whoever it, what it is that it wants to elect. Like that can all go badly. What I'm here to say is like, it's up to you to make it go the way you want it to go. And that's what leadership is. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying to you. It's like, you say we get to decide. How do we decide? Like, what is the process? Like, how does one make one's decision known? What does it mean to decide? Mm -hmm. To me, it's to act. Absolutely. It's, it's to put your gifts and resources in the service of your values. Your, like. Absolutely. So, do you see why I'm like so my, struggling my, here? My values are that everybody should have the freedom and the opportunity to explore what those actions are for themselves. So in a sense, it feels like you're the referee where you're saying like, I'm not going to decide. I'm going to create a level playing field. So we're not the referee, we're the playing field. Okay. That's a key. That's the key distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and wow. I mean, it's funny. Like, I'm just thinking like, maybe you're not as humble as I thought because that's, that's a very powerful statement. Um, we, the internet, we, the tool makers, we, the, we are the, we are the playing it's, it's, field. It's an enormous responsibility. And that's why we take it so seriously and that the idea that like I or a committee or anything would be making determinations around who should have the right to organize, to lead, to explore what their ideas might be is the height of arrogance. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because like I've been in situations where I was organizing games and I could see the participants that were coming to play and I knew it was going to be a bloodbath. And so I changed the rules. I leveled, I, I tilted the playing field so that the little kids had a chance or so, you know, like, like, I wasn't interested in sort of saying like, it's not my job to care who wins this game or to care who loses or to care what happens. I'm just here to provide a fair, a, a, a playing field, a free and fair place where everybody can do their thing. And I'll just let the chips fall where they may. I was like, nah, nah, that kid's going to crush everybody if I don't stop. But it. remember where we've come from before Nation Builder. It's like you needed to have immense amount of financial resources in order to be able to tap into the power of the internet to lead people and to, and to, to even just to run for office. You needed to have the blessing of the political parties. You needed to have access to data. We have systematically broken down each of those barriers and we're gonna continue to break down every one of those barriers because like the game was stacked before. And like, well, we are, we are unstacking that game. People always tell me they're unstacking that game. They tell me the internet's gonna unstack the game, but I gotta tell you something, like, I'm, I'm, the, the inter internet doesn't stack the game. People using the internet and people creating things like Nation Builder or what are gonna unstack the game. Yeah, but here's the thing, like, I'm at USC, okay? And the kids who, who make the best use of the internet are the kids that grew up in the nice families with 
the great educations and the good food and the good health. So like they go like, but the internet is available to everybody. And I go like, no, it isn't. Not in the, and you go like, but everybody can get it. Yeah, and the kids in my ghetto, they all had smartphones. But like they couldn't compete to save their lives with the kids at USA. And so like, and you know what the internet did? Is, is if they were fighting, if you will, if they were competing on the basis of like with pens and pencils and erasers, the, the, kid, the privileged kids would have had a certain advantage. You amp up the technology and, and, and the gap just widens out so that like it's, the internet has, it has not, has not that, equaled the playing field. It has only made it all the more, all the more unequal. And that is what terrifies me. That is why Nation Builder exists, is exactly that. Because there was all, there's been all this talk and dogma from like internet evangelists over the years where it was like the internet itself was going to sort of fundamentally like level the playing field. And instead what we've seen is that we've seen that folks who understand it in a really deep way have like figured out how to leverage the ability to organize at a scale that was unimaginable for. You look at, you know, Facebook. Facebook got to a billion followers in 10 years. It took Jesus Christ 2,000 years to get to a billion followers. That power is unmatched and unparalleled and only a handful of people know how to wield it. And so we are here because we, we are out there and my message is like everybody should have the access to be able to do that. And it's not just, Unfortunately, it's not just technology that can do that because like there are so much, there's educational problems, there's structural problems, there's structural racism, there's like so many things that have to get sort of knocked down. But, but like, unless there is a force that is going against the, the natural tendency of like the technology to consolidate power, we are totally screwed for exactly that reason. Every technology, every technological advance has increased the gap between the advantaged and the disadvantaged in all of history. It's true. And so if you care about love and community and values and you're, you're one of the privileged, I always felt like it was my job to like totally side with the disadvantaged, to like use all my talents and all my energies. That's what we're doing. It's exactly the reason why we do what we do. <laughs> Basically like, I want you to decide, like, I want you, you, but you say like, but we're not going to make the decision about who deserves to get to play. We also have 8,000 other customers that like pay $29 a month and are like organizing against Trump that are organizing for immigrant rights that are organizing to secede from California that are like, I mean, you name it, like people are like coming <laughs> right, up with some right. way to use nation builder. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's easy to like, you know, get all oriented around one particular person. That and you I, don't no, like. I'm not, I'm not there. I, I guess what it is is like. I am always trying to talk kids who are great coders into coding for climate change organizations and not coding for Monsanto. Like I don't want them to work for Monsanto. And I'm trying to get kids who are amazing, um, amazingly gifted with people to work in to, to teach underprivileged kids and to organize in underprivileged neighborhoods and not to work for Ernst and Young as you know, at, like to use skills to like make rich people richer. And so to me, like I, I, I want everybody to take a side. So that's the thing that is 
really starts to understand why NationBuilder needs to exist is because every single one of our customers is doing the exact same thing from their own perspective. They are fighting for the thing it is that they believe, that they, how they want to change the world. And unless like, there is the ability for everybody to have the freedom and opportunity to fight for that thing that they believe in, then where are we? We've got random rich white guys like me deciding who it is that gets to organize. And the thing is, is that traditionally random rich white guys like you pick random rich white guys like you. And so what I'm saying is like, if you're a random rich white guy, like come over to the, you know, come over to the other side and like bring those resources with you because I promise you the other random rich white guys, they're not going to do that. So that's what we've done. Okay. That's, this is like literally exactly what it is that we've done. And that's why we do this is because everybody, everybody before nation builder, you needed tens of thousands of dollars to even like enter the game. You needed to have like the blessing of the political party or the establishment or whatever, to even have a chance at running. You needed to wait in line. You don't need to anymore. And that is because of us, because we made that decision. I know. And I don't want to, I'm going to move off this topic in a second. Cause I just, I, 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 maybe it's just the problem I'm having, but like, I'm going like, yeah, there was this, there was this random narcissist and he didn't have what it took to run for president. He didn't have enough organization. Like he was out of the game. He was the elite. We're not going to pick him because they, he stood, he, he was too dangerous for them. They wanted economic security. They, like he didn't have what it took to run for front pre, president as rich as he was. He couldn't buy a political machine unless somebody just put one out there and said, any little guy can have one. And so like, I wish there was a gatekeeper who said, you know what, before you can buy this, you have to pass the narcissist test. You have to pass the psychopath test. Like you, you have to have, you can have 87 billion different visions of the, of the common good, but like, I have to take your pulse and know that you have even, you even can say the words common good without choking. So I would say that, um, on the narcissist or I think it's more psychopath than narcissist. There's a lot of narcissists and it's a continuum, right? But um, I would say that the way to solve the psychopath is not trying to prevent them from having access to, you know, let's like starve them. They can't get food anymore, right? Or let's say you can't watch, you know, TV or like come up with all the things that you're not allowed to do once you're like been labeled a psychopath. Like, I don't think that's the right approach. I think we need to, need to go to Big Pharma and make a drug. <laughs> Uh, we have throughout our culture for probably more worse than better, but, um, have medicated our way out of things that are socially unacceptable. Um, whether it's uh, depression or erectile dysfunction, right? Um, no one has approached the problem of disconnecting humanity or complete disregard for other humans as a problem that should be investigated or explored from a pharmacology perspective. Um, I think the administration of that and like how that would work in a society is like gets very, very complicated, but I'm pretty sure that all of those parents that are out there, like giving their kids ADHD drugs would be pretty interested in like giving them anti-psychopathy drugs when they know that when they see that behavior in their kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it would be beautiful if there was that pill. 
um, the, what I understand about the brain and what I understand about the parts of the brain, like, I'm, I, like, I think it's not a problem that anybody's figured out. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure that we will, but like, that's an interesting thought. But you know, the interesting thing is I was thinking about Karl Popper. Have you ever heard of Karl Popper, the political no. psych, political theorist and Popper's thing was, he says, we spend our time politically trying to figure out how to pick the right leaders. And he said, it's the wrong question. He said, cause you'll always make mistakes on picking the right leaders. He said, the real question is how do you create a political system that enables you to get rid of wrong, bad leaders when they emerge? Like, how do you quickly get rid of bad leaders? Um, which I think is a really interesting, and, and like, I think a lot of people will be reading Karl Popper in the next uh, few months because that, to, like, now that's the big question. Yeah, if you think about, you know, in a business, you know, you try to hire the best you possibly can, but you mess up every once in a while and you have to fire somebody, right? Well, the American people hired someone. Um, the American people don't actually like them. You look at, like, all the focus groups, like, like right up leading up to the election, where all nobody likes either of the candidates. They hated all they were, they were disgusting and gross and all the things. But like, those were the two people that they had to choose from um, in order to like, you know, make the hiring decision. Um, so I think there's two ways at it. It's like increasing, increasing the quality of the hiring pipeline, um, which is there's a whole lot of work that we're working on in that area and like how we would do that. And I have. We can talk about all those ideas, um, but that's uh, that's that's part of what you're into. Right? Like you're into like creating it, making it more possible for more people to enter the process. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, which is really hard because now elections and democracy have such a horrible brand because of like the awfulness that was this last campaign. So I'm a little worried about that front. Like it's going to turn so many people off running for office. Um, but there isn't a mechanism really for like how do you fire someone. Um, in elected office, you, we, we get to reevaluate every four years. Um, that's the closest that we've got. Um, and obviously, in a handful of states, there are recall provisions and stuff like that, which is generally meant to be more for like egregious behavior and criminal activity or what have you. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't have a good uh, mechanism for firing presidents. Yeah, that's the weird thing. Is like the people that I know that are hurting today. It's not just about this one guy. Like my black friends, my gay friends, they're saying like, wow, there are a lot of people that saw exactly what was going on. And they were like, don't care that much. Not that worried about it. Like we know he's, we know his attitudes towards women and his behavior towards women. It's not a big problem for us. Like it's not a big enough problem. And so the weird thing is they're not upset about the one guy in power. They're upset about the the millions and millions of people that check that box. And it may, and I had a friend, a Korean doctor in New York City, and he said, I've never, I've known that I could never go back to Korea. Like they would spot me as an American. I don't fit into that society. But he said like, I don't feel like this is my country anymore. Like I, so, so the thing they, they I were really, they were really worried about that. And, and I sort of thought like they were worried because They felt like there were a lot of people out there that just weren't that concerned about what what might harm them. Yeah. No, I, I think I'm hearing a lot of that from folks as well. The the thing that um, and it's and, and it's absolutely true at a certain level. I don't think it is as bad as folks are processing right now because uh, on Sunday before the election, um, 60 Minutes aired a focus group with Frank Luntz, who is the, fan, is the famous uh, Republican uh, focus group guy, and they pulled a cross-section of Americans and, you know, all that, and um, 
not a single person in the room felt that like either candidate was anything but like disgusting um, in one form or another. Um, nobody who voted for Trump and felt that like he was, that they liked his values, that felt that his like treatment of women and the admitted sexual assault and like all of these things were things that they thought were good or anything at all. <laughs> um, and they still voted for him. Um, I feel like a lot of people described corruption and lying and completely being disconnected um, from the problems of real people is how they articulated their disgust of Hillary Clinton. Um, and so the results are not an indicator that there are 56 million Americans who agree with Donald Trump's behavior. None of them do, or maybe a handful do, but none of them really do. Um, and so that gives me a bit of hope that it's possible for folks to start to like talk about how we move beyond all of this horrible toxicity and things like that. Um, but that's what I've just been really encouraged folks to, to watch that um, because this isn't what people believe. This is not this is not the value system. Even the folks that voted for him is not Donald Trump's value system is not their value system. Yeah, people are hurting. That's the thing that I took away. The people that voted for him, you think, are I hurting. I think people on both sides, holding all of America is hurting in different ways. You're, you're hurting, right, because of all the hateful or horrible things that he has said and the struggles to be of, of this, the struggles of just, just institutional racism itself, which, are, which have come to the fore so prominently like in this election season. But none of that would have like, come to the fore without this election cycle. And all of the horrible things, like it came up and like people are talking about it now. Um, they're hurting, right? People that are like lost their jobs because there aren't any manufacturing jobs in America anymore. Um, like, you know, it's, we're struggling. And this election is that what this election highlights for me is just how deep it is and how we're unable to Cross, cross yeah, lines. I mean, no, we talk, I, I, like, I, I listen to the folks on the left, and they talk about how much they hate Trump, and how much like tr like how much Trump like like stop hate dump Trump, and yet I've never seen like more hatred than to people who are supporting Trump, and it's like it's just it's understandable. No, I, I, it's understandable I, yeah, on so many right. levels, but it's also just so destructive and we've got to get past that in some way. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think that the, the, the question that people, the thing that people, I, I wish that they would respond instead of with judgment, but with curiosity yeah. and just say like, tell me more, like, tell me more about that. Like, why was that okay? Or like, what is it that you're, what is it that you're, you're afraid of? Or, or what were you hoping when you voted for him? Like, what, what are you hoping that he'll do? Like, what are you hoping that he'll accomplish? What are you afraid of? Like, th there needs to be more curiosity about why people do what they do instead of this, like, assumption, like, you must hate this country or you must hate black people or you must hate women. But I will tell you this, that, like, it is strange to me because whatever they're hurting over, like, it's interesting, like, in my family, sometimes you find out, like, what people care about when the chip, when they're in pain, because like, yeah. 
then they'll, when the chips are down, it turns out they don't care that much about this or that or the other. They just want to get to whatever it is that they want to get to. And the weird thing is, is like, I believe you that America's in pain. There's, if this is the way America responds to pain, then I don't trust America very much. America doesn't have a real good character when the chips are down. And that, that's, I think, what's, what's troubling to me right now is that I feel like I, I understand that people are hurting. And I go, like, we re, this country reacted to its pain like a child. Yeah. You know, like a child. So let me ask you a question totally off this. But, like, you had this crazy experience. You started this company. It's going well. Um, what's the rest, like, like, is this, like, is this your life or are you going to go home tonight and that, and there's this other life somewhere like, like, is this your community? Cause like when I meet you coder guys, sometimes this is, this is it. Like, where's the rest of your life lie beside, beyond this? You don't start a technology company and have anything, any life other than the company. You really don't, do you? Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the way we work is in community with each other. And like, it's it's a somewhat unusual environment in that way. Um, No, when you came by to talk to the kids, like, it was very clear to me that like half of this community building stuff that you're, you're wanting to like push out there to other people and leadership stuff is stuff that you're you're engaging in here to make this, to make your company and your world more a, a healthier place mm-hmm. and a nicer place. And, and, and there's and, not, and there's, and a little bit of that is purely because like, that's what I need. That's where you live. Yeah. So, so when you go home from here, where do you go? Like, where do you live? Um, I live like three blocks away from the office. And so I walk home. Oh, you really are that guy. <laughs> and, and, okay. So you live, you live down. <laughs> Okay, so you live in this part of the world, and um, and you're not like, do you live alone? Uh huh. Yeah. Are you an, and you're an introverted person, right? So that's good for you to live alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I need. Um, I definitely need my space away from folks. Yes. So there's this, and then there's a bedroom somewhere. Yeah, about 700 square feet, three blocks from here. Right. It's on the 14th floor. It's got a got a nice view. Killer view. It's got a great view um, and a really comfy bed. Uh, and a good blender. And so like music, like movies, like, is there any, is there any passion for you other than the passion for creating this playing field? I really love watching people who are striving to be the best in the world at something. At something. Yeah. I'm just totally... So sometimes it's like documentaries, like like Chef's Table, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, oh my uh, gosh, last night, last night, a friend of mine who works for the LA Opera invited me to see the opera there, which is this, it's this, you'll love this thing. It's this crazy opera written by Philip Glass about the invention of monotheism. Oh, wow. It's really, and like, and they had like, um, a contra tenor singing the lead role. Which, do you know what a contra tenor is? No. It's a guy that sings like a soprano. Okay. All falsetto. And he was 
unbelievable. And you know, there were, and, and the sets, and they had like the world's best jugglers there doing juggling in the middle of the opera at, you know, in time with the music. And even if you, like, at, at times it was hard for me to understand what was going on and the music was like strange, but oh my gosh, were they excellent. It was just, and you could just sort of, in a sense, just go like, these are people that are so purely doing something wonderful. I mean, yeah, and getting underneath like how it is that they do it. There was a, another movie that comes to mind, particularly because it touches on like how far do you go as a leader in pushing somebody is Whiplash. Um, oh yeah, I didn't see that. The one about the drumming teacher. Yep. Um, and it's interesting. It's what's so interesting about it is it's, it's like there's leadership um, lessons in it, and it makes you really uncomfortable with like. Is he going too far, right? And his pushing of this kid who wants to be the absolute best in the world is like willing to do anything for that. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're just like kind of that, that those. I, yeah, the I want those people. I just I want to be the like best in the world at what I do, and I seeing potential in someone who can do that and just needs the push here or the, you know, mentorship here or whatever. Um, it just really lights me up. I mean, I'm, I know it does for you, it has to, right? Do it that for you. Um, and, um, and so kind of, I get so much inspiration in my own work from, you know, watching, uh, you know, somebody like make a dish that I would never kind of imagined. It's, it's interesting. Um, like cross discipline, like the thing that, um, I really connect with is that sort of unrelenting push um, and desire to be the best. It's so interesting. Like I'm, I, like I just have this thought in my mind, like that there's this fundamental congruency between you and me in terms of like the things that inspire us and that we love. And like when you were with my students the other night, I could tell you're just looking at them, going like, I love these kids. <laughs> They're just beautiful, you know, because I, you know, you're there with all these kids and they're, they're just loving and kind and committed to making the world a better place and they're interested and they're secular and, um, and, and I could like, so there's this fundamental congruency in that stuff. And I realized that there is this, and maybe I was just evangelical longer than you. And so it became more part of my DNA. But I have no conscience about making a decision. This is the thing I'm going to promote and push. And this is the thing I'm going to leave to wither and hope withers and want to go away. And like some of the religious stuff that you and I grew up in, I don't want to attack it. But boy, I wouldn't cross the street to give it a cup of water. You so, know. So, so I, I, there's this. Yeah, I feel compelled to, to share this now. Um, so, when I got the lung transplant, or, or rather, um, when I was waiting for the lung transplant, I was on oxygen and stuff like that, and was in bed a lot and watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy. The first two seasons were amazing. <laughs> By the way, after that, it was, it was terrible. Um, but 
But for a guy waiting for a lung transplant, you're watching a hospital show. Oh, yeah. And there was an amazing episode where they actually did a transplant. And then there was this whole, like, I call it the money shot where they, like, inflated the lungs. And I was just like, repeat, repeat. I just want to watch that over and over again. That is going to happen for me. It was so beautiful and amazing. Um, uh, but I had... I was forced to reckon with this idea that I would literally not be able to survive without other people physically in my body. And I really started to process like what that meant. I was gonna have three different DNAs. And so um, I made this very conscious decision that my life was no longer mine. That it wasn't about anything that I wanted. Um, that I was giving my life up to God, to all of humanity connected. And that vehicle has become my story in Nation Builder, and I didn't fully have that conceptualized yet, but um, it isn't about what I want or what I believe anymore. Um, and at a certain level it is, of course, because if you go way down deep, I am, I do believe that that is what I should be doing. Yeah, right? I want but, <laughs> to not, I, I want it to not be about what I want. And, and yes, and so I acknowledge that philosophically and all the things, right? But, um, but this isn't my life. I believe that, I believe that Humanity Connected is the transcendent force that is worth worthy of my, you know, and actually not just humanity, just life connected, like animals are in it. Like it's like, I haven't dropped acid yet, but I'm planning on it. <laughs> but the people I know that have, they say that that's the amazing thing is that there have, some of them have had these moments where they see how connected everything is and that they're just, we're just, we're part of the universe. We're not in the universe. We are the universe. Um, but, but that connectedness, it's so funny that, you know, you found that through the internet, in the internet, but in the end, you end up saying, yeah, in my company, we're going to have to develop the ability to sit around in a circle and tell each other stories face to face because there's the most important kind of connections don't happen. I mean, we're going to do it in VR too. Like we're just, it's just we've got a little more time to go on that. Oh, one. stop yourself. I mean, do you really think that? Do you really think that the technology can eventually get to the place where it can, it can match? Because like I'm, I think it can, and that's what I don't want it to do. I'm loyal to human. I'm loyal to the human experience. Oh, I think it will be the way it will be successful is when it is very human. Um, so that's what's got me. I mean, I don't know if like you know sitting in circle like in VR is going to work in the same way that it is in the physical space. Like I wonder if there is like a an actual energy that transmits like, like when you're physically around other folks and like how much of an impact that that plays and stuff like that. But, um, but I'm definitely interested in like figuring out if that would work because it opens up a lot of opportunities. Cause if you can have people from different cultures and there's like automatic translation and you can be disguised and like, you know, and that creates different kinds of community experiences and ways to listen and understand each other that like weren't possible before. So um, I'm kind of fascinated with that ultimately, but it, the technology needs a lot of work. It's funny, I'm but. just finishing this book called Future Crimes, which is all about the more connected we are, 
the more vulnerable we are. Mm. And I know you know, I like, obviously you know that as well as anybody, I'm sure security and all this stuff is primary. It's funny because like, I've heard people say that when that technology that you're talking about comes online, as it certainly will at some point, the singularity or whatever, they're saying that like, there'll be this new species that'll be different. Like it'll, it'll be, it's an adaptation. Like it'll be another, like, it'll be another thing and it'll be better. And it's funny because I find myself going, it may be better, but I'm loyal to the old technology. So I am, I am with you in a certain regard because like, I am not a, you know, let's let the robots like take over and the singularity and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. I feel like, um, what is more likely to happen, right? And, or what, I, what we can make happen if we choose to is getting really good at understanding what humans are like uniquely meant to contribute to the world and what software and technology and robots and AI are, uni are uniquely meant to contribute to the world. And that that symbiosis and that kind of, you know, you know negotiation over the course of the next couple of decades is going to be kind of what defines the future of everybody. Um, and that's, and that's the place where, again, like my egotism comes in because somebody's going to have to make a decision. Some people are going to have to make decisions where they say, this is the technology and we're not going to do what everything it can do. We're going to use it to accomplish these goals over here, these human goals that we decided together. Like, I'm willing to be part of that. Like, I'm willing to take a stand and say, let's define what human goodness is or let's define what goodness is. On the basis of our relationship, there's no objective goodness. There's just our relationships with each other. And let's have our standard of goodness. Let's impose it on the technology rather than letting the technology change us. And I would articulate that slightly differently, which is that we should be intentional about what the values are that we're like building into our software and systems. And, and I would say even more broadly, we need to be intentional about what kind of culture we want to create, even without the robots. Like, right, right. Like, let's start talking about that right now. Yeah, I think let's start that conversation right about now. That sounds good. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Thanks for this. Thank you so it's much. Good. You bet. So that was my conversation with Jim Gilliam. I loved it. Um, I hope you liked it. Uh, let me know. Bartcampola.org. You know how to reach me. Um, but listen, I know it's been a little erratic with like a 10-minute podcast and then like a four-hour podcast and not dropping them on Mondays as per usual. We're actually going to shift the drop date to Tuesday for a whole lot of technical reasons. Um so when we get back on the other side of Thanksgiving, we'll get back regular again in, you know, in all ways. And, uh, and we'll do the listener email thing. And we've got some cool new developments coming up. Like there'll be lots of news on the other side. But for now, just thanks for being part of it. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org. <laughs>